Welcome to the Indigenous United podcast with your hosts, Sierra, Atea, and Alexi. This is a podcast about issues important to us as Indigenous students at UC Berkeley. Welcome to another Indigenous United podcast episode. This is the first of a series of three episodes on the Native American Graves and Repatriation Act, commonly referred to as NAGPRA. I imagine if you're listening to this podcast, you're interested in Indigenous issues at Berkeley and have heard that there are thousands of Native American ancestors stored by the Hearst Museum. NAGPRA was passed in 1990 and requires federal agencies and institutions that receive federal funds, such as museums, universities, state agencies, and local governments, to repatriate or transfer Native American human remains and other cultural items to tribes. We were curious how Berkeley has managed to keep so many ancestors from returning home to be properly buried and wanted to create an episode explaining this history. In trying to tell this story, we realized that the history of NAGPRA at Berkeley is not well documented. We interviewed people familiar with this history and scoured the Hearst annual reports and old newspaper articles. Our single episode sprawled into three. Today's episode, we want to focus on the policy itself through an interview with Shannon O'Loughlin, who is a citizen of the Choctaw Nation and the current executive director and attorney for the Association on American Indian Affairs. Shannon received her BA in American Indian Studies from California State University in Long Beach and a joint MA and JD degrees from the University of Arizona in Indigenous Peoples Law and Policy. And in 2013, she was appointed to the Native American Graves Protection and Repatriation Act Review Committee. But before we get to that, I'll give a brief overview of the law. NAGPRA is fundamentally a human rights legislation and is in place to protect the cultural and biological remains of Native Americans and their ancestors. It requires and outlines a process for institutions to return Native American cultural items and ancestors to lineal descendants, culturally identified Indian tribes, or Native American organizations. Institutions must identify and report all ancestors and other cultural items in inventories and summaries. Then, repatriation is accomplished by consulting with lineal descendants and tribes. Institutions that don't comply with NAGPRA may incur civil penalties. While the law seems fairly straightforward, this series will uncover how institutions like Berkeley have evaded the law and refused to return ancestors. In our interview, Atea and I asked Shannon several questions about NAGPRA, beginning with how it came into existence and how it's been implemented. And finally, how might we as individuals support NAGPRA compliance. We hope you enjoy hearing from Shannon. So hi, Shannon, thank you so much for joining us today. I wonder if we could start with you giving us an introduction. Thank you very much. Um, my name is Shannon O'Loughlin. I'm a citizen of the Choctaw Nation of Oklahoma, and I'm also the executive director and attorney for the Association on American Indian Affairs. I'm coming to you today from the original homelands of the Piscataway people, and I want to thank them for making a, a, a beautiful place uh, to be. And uh, I'm grateful to be here with you today. Thanks for inviting me. Thank you. We're just going to dive right in. So can you tell us, Shannon, what is NAGPRA and what's the history of NAGPRA? 
So the Native American Graves Protection and Repatriation Act uh, just celebrated its 30-year anniversary, November 16th, 1990. So it's been in action, so to speak, for the last 30 years. It came out of negotiations between tribal advocates, uh, tribal leaders, nonprofit organizations that were trying to protect our rights to American Indian religious freedoms and our ability to access sacred places. So prior to NAGPRA, uh, there had been an act called in 1978, I believe, the American Indian Religious Freedom Act. And a court case came along, uh, the United States Supreme Court, and basically held that that act had no teeth. So it gave us no rights to enforce our ability to access certain spaces that we could use for religious and cultural purposes. And so... um, quickly saying that um, NAGPRA was really not initially contemplated. It was really advocacy for American Indian religious freedom, while at the same time something else was happening. The American Indian Museum in New York City, which is originally known as the George Gustav High uh, Museum, which was an institution created um, in the early 1900s, I believe, by a German man that went around stealing Native American items. And he uh, solicited all sorts of anthropologists and archaeologists to help him go gather items from the vanishing race of American Indian people. So he brought railroad cars full of sacred altars and items of human remains in anything you can imagine from all over Indian country. And those filled that New York City Museum. Um, That museum uh, was being taken back over uh, by New York State because uh, it's a charity and it wasn't fulfilling its purpose. Uh, So they were looking to sell it or transfer it. And there was all sorts of people who were trying to, or entities trying to get hold of the the institution. What ended up happening is the Smithsonian uh, took it on. And it's that institution that became the National Museum of the American Indian. And part of obtaining that was this advocacy that uh, those items should be returned. So before NAGPRA, there was actually the Smithsonian Act or the National Museum of the American Indian Act, which applies only to Smithsonian institutions. And NAGPRA, of course, doesn't apply to those Smithsonian institutions. The NMAI Act does. And it's a little bit different. And it allows Smithsonian institutions to, to do much more research and reporting It's a much longer process to go through a repatriation with those institutions and with the National Museum of Natural History, because really there's only two Smithsonian institutions with our sacred items and ancestors, and that's NMAI and the uh, National Museum of Natural History. Well, natural history has been extremely problematic at implementing and repatriating our ancestors and sensitive items. So people are looking to advocate to get stronger um, support for that repatriation work there. So 
NAGPRA kind of grew as something that wasn't really contemplated, but came because of circumstances allowed perceptions to start to shift. People started to, you know, when you look at the history of the NMAI collections and start thinking about why it was so permissible to allow people to collect all of those things from native people who are still who are still alive and here they're not some ancient gone culture we've been here but you know when you've had your religious freedoms removed when it's been illegal to speak your language when it's been illegal uh, to practice your religion and culture when your children have been taken from you all in an effort of this cultural and and physical genocide you know those things become unlawful booty or maybe lawful uh, as they would say you know it's it's like you know what the vikings would go get you know it becomes the aftermath of victory where you take the spoils of what you've fought for so you know people started changing how they saw that because native people were outspoken and strong advocates you know it's hard to ignore someone standing in front of you saying, that's my grandmother. (laughs) That's my family's sacred items. So perspectives started to change. Um, And they've changed a lot in, in the last 30 years even. But at the beginning of NAGPRA, when it was passed, uh, there were a lot of museums and institutions that just did not want to comply. And today, when we look at the data about how what NAGPRA has done over the last 30 years, we see that there's a couple of handfuls, really like 10 or 15 institutions that have more than half of our ancestors still in boxes and in basements. Berkeley has more dead Indians in its basements than it probably has students attending. And it's not the only place like that. So when you look at that and you look at the history of NAGPRA, it's because those people who were there 30 years ago, and some of them are still there at those institutions, did not want to comply with NAGPRA. And so what they did, instead of consulting with tribes to affiliate these ancestors and repatriate, which is what the law requires, they identified everything as unidentifiable. There's not enough information. We can't affiliate, so we'll put them on what's called a culturally unidentifiable inventory. And then if a tribe wants to seek those, then they'll have the burden of proving there's affiliation. So they basically take, took the responsibility that Congress put on them expressly put on them to find affiliation to repatriate and said, nope, we're going to give it to the tribes. And so that's why you have institutions like Berkeley, uh, Harvard Peabody, the Field Museum and others with large, oh, Alabama, Alabama's bad. So many of the states in the, the upper Midwest where there are no federally recognized tribes like Illinois, Iowa, those those kind of states, and then some of the southern states. And then, of course, you have the UC system with its historic problems. Thank you so much for that history. It's really amazing to learn about the struggle of advocacy over the years. But I think you also started addressing the second question, which was how has NAGPRA been implemented in different cases? And has there been any problems that this process has revealed? 
Right, right. And there's so much to unpack. And I think from what I've seen from from my experience working on NAGPRA issues with tribes, what tribes believed happened with NAGPRA is that museums understood they had an obligation in good faith to consult and repatriate and that the process was a legal process with steps. And most tribes often don't have the capacity. They don't have lawyers helping them through understanding the a law. And they often have a lot on their desk. So tribes who have individuals who are dedicated to um, tribal historic preservation office officer work. They're the NAGPRA liaison. They work on uh, National Environmental Policy Act review. I mean, those documents are, are huge in the amount of review and paperwork individuals who are in those types of positions with tribes receive is immense. And usually those departments in, in tribal governments don't have a huge budget for staff. So oftentimes what tribes have done with their NAGPRA work is that often they depend on the institution to act in good faith with them. So the the museum will bring the tribe to the institution and they'll look at the collections. Oftentimes the tribe will share sometimes sensitive information with the institution so that the institution understands how how these items or these ancestors are connected with them. And then they ask for repatriation or they'll send a letter and saying, you know, per our discussions, we want repatriation of, of these things. And the museum's like, well, you know, we don't quite have enough information. Can you give us a little bit more information about that ceremonial practice that you were that you were talking about, or, or how is this ancestor not connected with potentially another tribe? And so we see this behavior from institutions where they're asking more and more information from tribes, and they're never making a decision to affiliate. And if tribes understood the legal process, how NAGPRA lays out um, the decision-making that's supposed to occur, then they would know that they they don't have to allow that kind of behavior. <laughs> they don't have to allow that kind of questioning and they don't have to share sensitive information for repatriation to occur. The law clearly states that for ancestors, for human remains in those funerary objects, that the only information required to affiliate is geography and tribal consultation. So truly the only unidentifiable ancestors out there are those who have absolutely no information, no geography, no funerary items, no collector information, nothing. Those are the only people, individuals who should be unidentifiable. So that is connected with the history and how those institutions resisted implementing NAGPRA and how it still shows up today in those great numbers of unidentifiable ancestors in those inventories. And if you look at those numbers, I think there have been reported about 190,000 ancestors in institutions and federal agencies that we know of. Those, that's what's been reported to the federal government. 
um, there are still 116,000 ancestors that have not been repatriated after 30 years. So there's only been like 80 some odd thousand people that have been returned home. So those aren't really great statistics. That's one implementation issue. And I always, I, I do my best to work with tribes as well as museums and others who are involved in these issues that that repatriation work is a law. It's based on a law and it's not a research project. So you don't have to go do more archaeology. You don't have to go do more research somewhere. The institution is supposed to take the information that it has with tribal consultation and then make a determination to affiliate. So that's how simple it can be with willing institutional partners. And when that happens between institutions and tribes, a wonderful relationship gets built. In fact, NAGPRA has helped institutions understand what they've had in their collections all these years. You know, items and ancestors, they were collected for scientific purposes and to educate the public. But institutions most of the time don't really understand what they have or they have a Western notion, a Western interpretation of what they have. And they've never talked with uh, the original peoples about items and, and, and why they were made or what they're for. And so NAGPRA really gives tribes an opportunity to share what they want to share and work with the museum to better educate the public about who we are and about what needs to be protected. It really goes to fulfilling the institution's mission as a public resource uh, versus just having collections in boxes. Another example of implementation or problems with implementation is federal agency compliance because federal agencies have been really poor at the repatriation compliance. In fact, there was a 2010, I think, Government Accountability Office report about federal agency compliance. Bureau of Indian Affairs was on top of the list as being one of the worst at not fulfilling its NAGPRA responsibilities. And there are many federal agencies that house their collections in academic institutions. And oftentimes that's done without a government contract. It may be done without proper payment from the federal government to those institutions to house professionally, you know, curate those items in the right temperature. And so here are these academic institutions and other institutions paying for the federal government's failure to comply with NAGPRA and not doing its responsibility to to consult and and repatriate. So it's, it's interesting how one looks at these issues. So the, the, the federal government thinks it's saving money by not repatriating. In fact, I remember asking Kevin Washburn when he was in Assistant Secretary for Indian Affairs, I said, you know, BIA is the worst federal agency. He's like, well, you know, I can only do so much with the budget that I have. And I said, yes, true. But uh, do you know how much it's been costing you over the years by failing to comply with this law and removing the collections from your control and possession because it, there's a cost associated with that. You know, so so some of these issues under NAGPRA is all about changing your perspective on how you're looking at them. NAGPRA is an, a wonderful healing and educational opportunity. It also um, uh, helps support institutions' missions 
It also can help the pocketbook if people resolve these NAGPRA issues. I really appreciate the way that you have simplified the law and saying, you know, that that it really is more straightforward than it sometimes seems. Do you think it's fair to say that the main reason that NAGPRA isn't being implemented is the fault of the institutions really not not wanting to comply with NAGPRA? Fault is an interesting thing. It often um, allows people to get stuck. So when we look at who's to blame, uh, you know, we didn't do it. (laughs) I mean, it just it's not very helpful advocacy tool to blame. I think what can be more helpful is talking about responsibility and accountability and also ethics legal responsibilities, moral responsibilities. I think when we look at what's before us, individuals who work with tribes who have NAGPRA responsibilities, they have a certain accountability and responsibility to um, work on these repatriation issues to get the ancestors home. Well, you know, NAGPRA was created created to benefit Native people. It is expressly created for that purpose, not for anyone else. And the obligation and burden was to be on institutions and federal agencies. It was like amending the injury that occurred, right? Um, So we have a law, a very Western law that lays out responsibilities and the accountability that museums and institutions have to tribes about items that belong to tribes. And it is a traditional way to make sure we hold them accountable for their role and responsibility in caring for our ancestors and making sure that we now can take them back and return them. And and I think when we look at it more as, you know, that we have certain responsibilities and roles to play in the the things that we've chosen in this life, uh, I, I think people are, more apt to move that way than if we um, blame um, or lay fault. Um, of course, unless we're in a court of law or um, somewhere where, you know, that's that's how you determine people's rights. Sure, sure. Thank you. Thank you. Why is it important to frame NAGPRA as a human rights issue? Right. Uh, well, first, because it is one. Uh, so NAGPRA is... And I hold that it may be the only human rights law in U.S. law because it, you know, Congress looked at the facts and determined that that American Indians were being discriminated against from their very right to have their cultural and religious items, from protecting their dead and practicing the religious ceremonies necessary for their dead, among other things. And that when a contractor developer came upon a white cemetery, there were certain processes and procedures to protect the rights of those family members. And there's cases all over the country before NAGPRA about this. But when it was an unmarked Native American grave or sacred space, no rights, no rights. It was absolutely inequitable. And so you could look at it as a civil rights law in one way, but what we're really talking about is is more than civil rights. It's about basic 
human rights and it, and all the international mechanisms, conventions, and declarations related to human rights define cultural and religious practices as in our ability to choose those and those not to be interfered with. Those are those are basic human rights. And in the the United States, it's even a it's a constitutional right to be able to practice your religion without it being burdened by the government. For a quick break, we will offer some tips compiled by Native American student development at Cal for how to take care of yourself in these trying times. Tip number one, this can be scary, but you still have community. For your mental health, stay in touch with other people through Zoom, FaceTime, or Google Hangouts. Number two, try to keep things as normal as possible. Exercising and keeping a schedule can help. Getting fresh air every day is possible through a walk or by opening a window. Tip number three, breathe. It can be helpful to take a moment to breathe, slow down, and just be. Number four, you can watch animals in different parts of the world through live cams. For example, explore.org, the Smithsonian, the San Diego Zoo, and Monterey Bay Aquarium. Number five, if you start to feel down, reach out to someone. We hope these are useful to hear and perhaps have encouraged you to incorporate something new into your routine. Back to the interview, we asked Shannon a few more questions about NAGPRA. I'll go ahead and ask the next question, and this is more focused on Berkeley. How does Berkeley compare to other institutions in regards to NAGPRA implementation and compliance? Well, it, it doesn't compare very well. It really is one of those handful of outliers that I talked about earlier that handful or so of institutions that have the majority of ancestors and those ancestors are mostly unidentifiable. They've declared they are unidentifiable. Another thing about the UC system, but I don't want to put it all on the UC system because you see it in some other institutions as well. You just It's just that the UC system is such this big behemoth and the scientists involved in, in bringing collections into California and into these institutions is just so vast. There's just, just a great amount and a number of items and individual human beings, you know, that we're talking about that's at Berkeley and in the UC system. But most of the bureaucracy in these academic institutions make it almost impossible to repatriate according to the law. So it always kind of confuses me that people are trying to develop a state law which I think is great. And especially if you are, you know, because I see NAGPRA is the bottom, it's the foundation. You can, a state can always provide more rights, but it can't do less than what the federal law provides. So NAGPRA is the baseline. You have to do at least that well. And so if California wants to develop law that does better than NAGPRA, absolutely do it. Include non-federally recognized tribes, you know, broaden those those rights to repatriation, make it simpler, make it more efficient. But now, today, regardless of any California law, the UC system has had uh, legal obligations to follow NAGPRA, which has a process that is streamlined and even tribes 
you know, once they request repatriation, there's supposed to be a 90-day turnaround. And I don't know that there's ever been a repatriation in the UC system that's taken 90 days. You know, so the basic processes and policies of an academic institution to carry out repatriation under NAGPRA, it's just a bureaucratic bunch of BS. You know, no one has said, how do we do this according to the law? They're all like, how do we do this according to our own bureaucratic policies so that all these different levels of of reviewers can take a chunk out of the, the review? It's maybe here, I'll use that word, they are to blame for Berkeley to say that it wants to repatriate but still hold on to this kind of review process that is many layered, I, I, I think is shows that they're not really serious with complying with the law. I don't think that's just Berkeley's problem because I've seen it in other institutions, but it definitely shows its face when you look at the different layers that happen in, in the UC system. The university, I think they are number two of all institutions with the number of of individuals in there. And that's Berkeley. That's Berkeley alone, not the whole UC system. That's just Berkeley. They're number two underneath the Tennessee Valley Authority. Now, what's different between the Tennessee Valley Authority and University of California, Berkeley, is that Berkeley, the majority of the ancestors that are there, like 83%, are all those unidentifiable individuals. And when we look at the numbers, there's about 95% of those where we know where those ancestors came from. Like consultation should be happening with those ancestors. Tennessee Valley Authority, the majority of of ancestors there are affiliated. In fact, they have been doing the work for repatriation through their consultation efforts with tribes. So Tennessee Valley Authority, even though their numbers are great, they're becoming a success in their NAGPRA work because they are affiliating their ancestors when their predecessors, folks that were at Tennessee Valley Authority 10 years ago or so, they weren't doing. So there's a huge change happening there where it's still not happening at Berkeley, University of Alabama, Harvard. Um, you know, those are the top four problematic places be- just because of the numbers. Thank you so much. Um, that's that's really helpful context. I'm wondering if you have any critiques of NAGPRA or its implementation. Ooh, lots. <laughs> um, first, you know, NAGPRA is a really progressive law. It is a human rights law, and, and it, very important for our healing from, you know, centuries of dispossession. I, at one time, was a counsel for uh, some tribes and their chiefs basically told me, we will never be whole until all of our ancestors back are back home and buried. And your job is, is to help make us whole. You know, that's what this works about. And NAGPRA can be a successful process to make that happen. What I found when I started working with tribes on NAGPRA is that tribes were working for 20 years, 15 years to get their ancestors and sacred objects back. And and it took a, a lawyer's letter 
to really start the repatriation process. Yeah. You know, that's disheartening when it takes a lawyer who understands the process to say, you know what, you're doing it wrong. And if you continue to do it wrong, here's what's going to happen. And the way NAGPRA is laid out, it puts a lot of uh, power in the institutions to make the determinations needed to repatriate. So oftentimes tribes don't have much leverage because the museum or the federal agency gets to make all the decisions or say, I'm not going to make any decisions and not do anything and sit on its hands and wait for the tribe to litigate, go and try to get civil penalties implemented. You know, the process is very difficult for enforcement. So one issue is that museums and institutions have too much power in NAGPRA, and there should be a a presumption of traditional knowledge of hierarchy of evidence that starts with the tribe, right? So the tribes are the experts of their own culture. Um, They're the experts of, of whether things are affiliated with them or not, not a Western institution. So that's where the hierarchy of evidence should start. That's where the presumption of of affiliation with the tribe that's requesting, that's where it should start. Second, um, the enforcement and compliance mechanisms in NAGPRA are weak and difficult. There is an alternative dispute mechanism. You can take a dispute you have with an institution to the NAGPRA Review Committee. NAGPRA Review Committee can fine for repatriation, but the institution can still do whatever it wants to do. So so their decision-making authority isn't binding at all. And so then your next place you'd have to go would be to court to try to enforce that review committee decision. There is a process of civil penalty complaints where anybody So you, me, Joe on the street can make a complaint to the Department of Interior that an institution is not following through with its NAGPRA requirements. In the past, though it is a little better today, National NAGPRA program hasn't had a lot of capacity to handle civil penalty complaints. And on top of that, the act um, just says that they may impose civil penalties. So it's kind of a weak enforcement mechanism. So what the National NAG program tries to do is help the institution comply and do the right thing. And if they're still unwilling, we'll charge them a, a civil penalty complaint, which doesn't even go to the NAG per program. It goes to the treasury. So it doesn't help grow the enforcement powers or capacity of the program that it's supposed to be benefiting. So civil penalties, review committee, they're limited. And then You've got the courts, so you have federal jurisdiction, and these repatriation matters rarely go to the court. I mean, we've seen Spirit Caveman, we've seen the Kennewick Man, and those were both instances where the institution was claiming science, 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 and even there, the courts didn't understand the issues of NAGPRA. On top of that, the regulations are extremely, they're quite burdensome and verbose, I would say. Well, come to find out, Department of Interior has been setting on a full change of NAGPRA regulations that are supposed to be more efficient, more progressive. 
aggressive considering the regulations um, that we have now were, you know, made 20, 25 years ago. They're supposed to be more helpful, but the Department of Interior won't release these regulations for all of us to comment on and consult about to determine if it's the best way to move NAGPRA forward. And those regulations were developed out of consultation 10 years ago. So the Department of Interior and this administration particularly has failed to to move on uh, putting out those, those regulations to help these issues and federally recognized tribes. So there's really no strong provisions that help support non-recognized tribes having access or participating in the consultation that occurs for repatriation. They only have a part to play in the disposition process where they may not get sacred objects or objects of cultural patrimony. They may only receive the ancestors' remains and the institution can still hold on to the funerary objects that were supposed to be taken care of uh, with the ancestor. So, that's another kind of hole in NAGPRA. And if you look at other laws like the American Indian Arts and Crafts Act, you know, state recognized tribes are included in that act. And there's also recognition of tribes being able to partner with federally recognized tribes. And many, many coalitions are built up. Like, for example, in in Michigan, federally recognized and non-recognized tribes come together and do NAGPRA work. And it helps with their capacity, their efficiency, the economics of repatriation, and really helps support that work. And it's hard to, for an institution to deny when you've got, you know, 20 some odd tribes coming at you. <laughs> you know, it's, it's hard to um, skirt that. So that has been really successful for many tribes is to come together in coalition and move forward in that way with repatriation efforts because doing it by themselves under NAGPRA is sometimes difficult and you don't have a lot of leverage. Thank you. And just to wrap up in the next couple of minutes, I have a two-part questions to close up. So what is the future of NAGPRA? Um, Like, do you anticipate any changes in the future? And as students or the general public, do you have any recommendations or any ways that we can help to support advocacy? Very good questions. And I want to answer both of those. So don't let me get away with not answering both of those because they're very important. Um, The future of NAGPRA. There are individuals, individuals who are actually looking at amendments to NAGPRA and are hoping to bring those before over the next four years to provide more expansive protections and expand NAGPRA beyond its restrictions. Because remember, too, that NAGPRA applies to federal hands and federal lands. So if I'm a private person, and I have sacred objects or maybe even human remains, NAGPRA doesn't apply to me unless I've stolen those items from an institution after 1990. So, you know, it's kind of schizophrenic that the federal government said these things are important for Native American culture, but, oh, private people, uh, they can still possess those things. You know, so it, it, it should be expanded more broadly than just federal hands and federal lands. 
and we have many laws that would support those kind of changes, like uh, protection of endangered species, like the eagle. Uh, if an eagle falls from the sky and lands on my in my yard, I have no right to that eagle. It's an absolute prohibitive law. And NAGPRA should be that way too. If I go in my backyard and I dig up something that I shouldn't have, I should be prohibited from taking it, selling it, starting a museum in my garage, (laughs) which people do, right? So the future of NAGPRA is amendment. I think we can make it stronger and meet the legal and moral obligations that the U.S. has to tribes to repair this great human rights harm uh, that it has it has instituted in, in this country. Um, now, your second question was, yeah, as students or the general public, do you have any recommendations for ways that we can help support advocacy for NAGPRA? Absolutely. Uh, one thing that you find often, though not at Berkeley, because we all know Berkeley's dirty laundry. But many institutions, museums are not transparent about their NAGPRA obligations. So you have an institution like the Field Museum in Chicago. They are doing great work at redoing their Native American exhibits. They haven't been updated since the museum first came to be. And they're getting lots of money to do that. But they still have, I think, 6,000 ancestors. Maybe it's not that many. So don't don't quote me on how many they have, but they still have huge NAGPRA responsibilities that haven't been fulfilled. The money has not gone to take care of their legal responsibilities. Instead, it goes to the things to try to get them more donors and more, more money elsewhere. So what I would ask the public, students and others to do is ask those institutions, the museums you like to to go to, ask them about how they're doing with NAGPRA. Ask them how many ancestors they have in their collections or how many Native American objects uh, they have in their collections. And when do they expect that their NAGPRA responsibilities will be complete? Also, Do you want to donate your money to an institution that hasn't fulfilled its legal and moral obligations to Native American tribes? Is that where you want your your dollars to go? Maybe, you know, the donation would be better spent with institutions that are trying to comply with NAGPRA, with tribes and other organizations and groups that are trying to work towards NAGPRA compliance and the protection of diverse Native American cultures and values. So that's what I would ask the public to do is, is know who the institutions are that you believe in, and you better find out for yourself whether they're complying with NAGPRA and their obligations to Native Americans. Thank you so much, Shannon. This this has been such a rich discussion and I feel like I've learned so much and, and have some great things that we can do um, moving forward. So again, I just want to say Toweak, thank you for your time and for all of the work that you do thank on you. these issues. Yeah, Koki, okay. thank you. We were blown away by Shannon's work and depth of knowledge around NAGPRA issues. We hope that you also had an opportunity to expand your understanding and take away some insights. In our next episode, we'll dive deeper into the history of NAGPRA, particularly at UC Berkeley and what's currently happening. But for now, thank you for listening.
We want to thank Native American Student Development for supporting us in making this podcast. We want to thank Superman for letting us use his song Prayer Loop. If you like the music, please go and check him out. <laughs>